Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is, again, a joy to be able to open God's Word with you. Though we long to gather together, we trust God's providence in the midst of this crisis and pray that God would bring relief quickly that we might gather again. Well, friends, as we gather to think about God's Word this morning, as we study the book of Genesis and really the whole Bible, as we think about the way God relates to people, one of the primary means and tools God uses to build relationship through salvation is through the means of covenants, uh, through contracts that He makes with individuals, men like Noah, Abram, David. God saves through these covenant relationships. And we experience covenants in our life today in a number of ways. First is marriage. Marriage is the covenant of one man and one woman for a lifetime. You might uh, experience covenants in a club membership. You sign a covenant with that organization. Of course, in the local church, we have covenant membership. Church membership is a covenant between the individual members of the church in a relationship. Or in a secular sense, we might speak of contracts. When you go to work for an employer, you sign a contract. The employer agrees upon your role and responsibility, and you, by signing on the dotted line, affirm that you will fulfill that work. Well, when we come to the covenant here in Genesis chapter 15, it's not a covenant between equal parties. Surely, God is not equal with man, but rather a bilateral covenant, a covenant where a vassal, a king, will have a relationship with an individual. God is making a covenant. And what we'll find here in Genesis 15 is is fascinating, is that God not only initiates the covenant, God is the one who will ultimately fulfill the covenant promises. In short, God is the one who begins it. God's the one who will complete it. Well, friends, I hope you have your, have your Bibles open before you to Genesis 15 as we begin to walk through the text. And, and as you have your Bibles open there, I just want to remind us of where we were last week. We considered in chapters 12 through 14, God building a relationship and initiating a relationship through a man named Abram. God called Abram to leave his country and he promised Abram that he would make him a great nation. We saw that he had great possessions there in chapter 13, that God had begun to bless Abram and establish his promise that he made with him. And then there was a sense of tension in the text in a number of ways. Number one, Uh, This promise that Abram was to be a great nation was dependent upon having children. Of course, if you have no people, you can't be a nation. If you have no descendants in which you can pass on the throne to. And secondly, there's no land. It's sort of silly, if you will, to say that I'm a king and have no land. And so there's the tension created. More than that, the land that God promised Abram Well, it was already occupied by very fierce and mighty kings. And we saw a sort of glimpse into the wars that will come in chapter 14 as Abram goes and faithfully rescues his nephew Lot after being taken captive by some of these wicked kings. 
Well, this is really the context that we find ourselves as we open up chapter 15. Abram has just won victory over these kings. And the question is, are these wicked kings going to come back and seek revenge? Well, with your Bibles open, I want to just show you the outline of the text this morning uh, is a way to help you understand as you're reading it, as you're thinking about it. Moses, as he's writing this, has structured the text in such a way as to point towards its purpose. Structure often helps to illustrate the very point that, that he's making, lest we be lost in the weeds of detail. Sometimes in narrative passages, you'll find the temptation to focus on really obscure uh, information that's not really the important story that is being told. So with your Bibles open, look here to chapter 15. I would just want to notice, notice it's really two parts. God's covenant promise. What he's doing here is that God is making a promise and he's going to seal that promise through a covenant. First, we see if you look at this chiastic structure, ABA pattern, you'll see in verses one through six that God first in verse one reveals himself and makes a promise. This will parallel verse seven. So if you look there at verse seven, God, again, makes a promise. Verse 1, the promise is that God will be his shield and reward. Uh, Verse 7, the promise is that God will give him land. Well, moving in in the structure to the sort of second, the B, uh, in verses 2 through 3, Abram has a complaint and a question of God. We see that mirrors over in verse 8. Again, if you look at verse 8, Abram again reveals, Uh, that Abram's complaint and question. He questions God's promise to him. And then the the subsequent matching uh, portions, verses 4 and 6, God reveals himself, has revelation, a word of the Lord, and he confirms the promise. So verses 4 through 6, we see God confirming the promise, which then mirrors, if you look over to verses 9 through 21, sort of a longer section here, where God's Again, makes a word, a revelation, and a confirmation. Well, what is it that God is doing? Well, God is promising Abram two things. First, that he will have children. And secondly, that he will have land. And again, to be a king in a kingdom, to have a nation, one needs to have those two things. People and land. And God promises him. Very immediately, Abram doubts God's promise. If you look there at verses 2 and 3, he questions God. I mean, come on, maybe I'll just use my, my servant here. He'll be my heir. And God confirms, no, you will have your own very own son. He promises there in verse 4 that from your own you will have a son, and he will be your heir. God kind of takes him on an illustration. He takes him outside at night in verse 5, and he says, look at the stars in the sky. This is how many children you're going to have. This is no small promise that God gives to Abram in the text. Well, again, secondly, we see that God promises land. Not only does he promise him people, but he promises him land. Again, he tells them in verse 7 that you will have this land to take possession. The land that Abram is now dwelling in is the land that is not his own, but he promises him that it will be. We see something quite fascinating as you study that I'm sure you were kind of fascinated by what 
Abram is told to do. He's told there in verses 9 to go out and get these animals and, and sacrifice them, to cut them in half, lay them out. We see God doing something quite miraculous in that God walks between the animals. Peter Gentry says this about this action of God walking between the animals. That walking between the animals cuts in half is a way of saying, may I become like these dead animals if I do not keep my promises and my oath to you. You see down there at the, the end of the text you'll, in verse 17, that when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. In other words, God, symbol symbolized in smoke and fire, these symbols that the nation of Israel would have known well, is confirming the covenant promise. God is the one who is making the covenant. He's the one who's initiated the covenant. He's the one who is sealing the covenant. The Hebrew word there in verse 18 that the Lord made a covenant with Abraham means to cut. The Lord seals the covenant himself, meaning that this covenant will be dependent not on Abram or his descendants, but on the Lord to keep. The Lord confirms his word of promise. It is signed, sealed, and delivered. It reminds us that faith rests in the person of God, not the probability of a promise coming true. God reveals himself in this way, and Abram was to trust in him. Well, of course, we saw that back up in verse 6, if you look just your way back up there. When God had promised Abram a people, look at how he responds there in verse 6. And Abram believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to Abram as righteousness. We see God beginning to reveal to us how those who are part of the covenant promise will respond. You see, in order to be a part of the, the covenant family, it's not by work, by following rules, but rather by belief. You see, the law comes after salvation, not before. Here in verse 6, we begin to see how God will redeem His people a foreshadow we see Paul picking up in Galatians in passages we've shared with you where he will use this passage to argue clearly that salvation is by faith alone and not by works. He declares him righteous by faith. And as Christians this morning, it is by faith in Christ alone that we are saved, not by works. We are, we are ensured that God is the one who initiates the covenant relationship with us in the new covenant. We don't go to God, but God comes to us and saves us. And our response is by faith. We trust that God promises to save through the death of Jesus Christ. And so we, like Abraham, believe in God's covenant promises. Well, as you've read through the text, you'll notice in verse six, in chapter 16, rather, uh, things begin to unravel very quickly. It's, it's a fitting uh, text and why I chose these three passages together. Verse chapter 15, God sort of initiates the covenant promise. Chapter 16, Abram and Sarai kind of go their own way. And, verse, and then chapter 17, God rescues them from themselves and confirms the covenant promise. We're looking here at chapter 16, we see we're told of the birth of Ishmael. In other words, what we learn in this story is that Abram and his wife go their own way. There's a literary tension that's in the text, and we're told right there at verse 1 uh, that Sarai, 
had no children. She had borne him no children. Now, for you and I, it's not particularly unfamiliar to us to know individuals that that are unable to have children. Perhaps you yourself uh, have not been able to bear children. In this particular time period where Abram lived, it was uh, one's honor among society was held closely to the ability to have children. And the very fact that Abram and his wife could not have children, uh, most around them concluded that they must have done something to upset God or there was something about them that was wrong. And so there's a tension in the text if you compare it to chapter 15. How will the promise be fulfilled if Abram's wife is barren? Uh, What will follow will be man's way of dealing with the problem. Both Sarah and Abram, like in Egypt, turned to their own wisdom rather than trusting in the Lord's promise. How quickly we doubt God's promise and His word, even as God confirmed it to him, uh, signed it and sealed it in chapter 15, Abram and his wife quickly. A number of things I want to point out to you as you've read through that, you you've saw Sarah's role is really the primary role in leading Abram. It's meant to mirror what we see in Genesis chapter 3, where Eve is the one who is tempted to go another way and Adam following his wife. We see that clearly if you look at chapter 16 and verse 2, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. That's almost a verbatim quote of what Adam does in the garden. He listens to his wife rather than the word of the Lord. Not only that, notice there in verse 3, that that Abram takes Hagar to be his wife. Not only are they disobeying God's promise, but they're unraveling the covenant of marriage. So often we are tempted to go our own way, thinking that our ways are better than the Lord's ways. Patience is the virtue we must pursue when trusting the promises of God. As Proverbs 16.2 reminds us, all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes. But the Lord weighs the Spirit. Just because it works doesn't mean that it's right. The entire scene is quite deplorable if you see it. It begins to just unravel. Not only are they disobeying God's promise and God's word, but Sarai begins to act like a lunatic. She begins to berate Hagar and so much so that Hagar flees and runs away. The man and woman of faith have quickly turned to desert the way of righteousness. But in the midst of this dark scene in chapter 16, we see something of God's grace and His mercy, did we not? We see there in chapter 16, verses 7 through verse 16, rather, God's merciful protection of Hagar. This slave woman who is now going to bear Abraham's son, a son not of promise, a son that will be cursed, we see God's mercy In the midst of that, the promise will not come through Ishmael, but the promise will come through Isaac. What is to become of Hagar? What is to become of her son? Look there at verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring of of the way to Shur. And he said to her, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing my, my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. And then we see this blessing here in verse 10. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot count, cannot be numbered for the multitude. In amazement, Hagar responds. 
in verse 13, that you are a God of seeing. See, the Lord had listened to her affliction. The Lord was not in the dark. He knew what Abram and Sarai were up to from the very beginning. And God chose to bless rather than curse. It's a great reminder here in verse 13 that God sees our sorrows, that He knows our sufferings, that God is a God of seeing. Friends, what an encouragement to know that our God not only knows but acts in our sufferings. God cares for His people. Friend, God sees your affliction right now. He knows the pain and the sorrow that you are experiencing. Trust this truth about our God that He not only sees and knows, but acts mercifully and kind. Well, as the story continues, we see that Abram has a son in whom he names Ishmael. Verse 16 tells us that he was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Well, 13 years will go by before 17, chapter 17 begins. We're told there in verse 1 of chapter 17 that he's 99 years old. And then the Lord appeared to him again. There was a 13 years of silence from the Lord. Perhaps a a sign of punishment because they had gone their own way. But God had not neglected Abram. He had not forgot his promise. And in chapter 17, God confirms the covenant through the sign of circumcision. Now, to be clear, chapter 17, this covenant in 17 is not a different covenant, but rather a confirmation of the covenant that he made in chapter 15. He is going to uh, give Abram a reminder of the covenant promise, uh, a daily reminder to not only Abram, but to his wife and to his children. Well, as we see here in the text, I just again want to show you an outline just as a way to help. First, we see in verses 1 and 2, the Lord initiates, or rather, the Lord has an intention to confirm his oath of a child. He, he reaffirms in verse 1 and 2 what he had already told Abram in chapter 15 and in chapter 12. Look there at verse 1 through 2. God appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Again, that word multiply you greatly is a reflection back to chapter Uh, 1 and 2, where God commanded man to multiply, to be fruitful. Uh, And so God here is, is again, affirming and confirming his promise that Abram will have children through Sarai. The Lord declares that he is able to do the impossible. He is El Shaddai. He is God Almighty. He is the, the one who is able. Abram need not understand how God will fulfill his promise, but trust the one who is able, the Lord Almighty. Abram is 99 years old. Now, to be clear, men and women back then aren't any different than 99-year-olds today. This would be by miracle alone that God would fulfill his promise to Abram. And he commands him here in verse verse, uh, verse 1 to walk before me and be blameless. Abram was to be the light to the world. He was to walk before the Lord and be blameless. In modern terms, Abram and his family are to settle along the central spine of the internet in the ancient world. 
all of the communications, commerce, and trade back and forth between Egypt and Mesopotamia will pass through Canaan. And when it does, what are they supposed to see? They are supposed to see a group of people who demonstrate a right relationship to the one and only true God, a human way of treating each other, and a proper stewardship of earth's resources. God calls Abram to be a light to the nations before him. Abram responds to this by falling on his face. Like all true servants of God, this is the proper response when God speaks, and that's to fall on your face. God responds by promising descendants again in a gift of land. Here he combines the two promises together in verses 4 through 8. He reminds them that this is an everlasting covenant, a covenant that will perpetuate into the future. Finally, there in verses 9 through 14, God signs the covenant and commands circumcision. The sign of circumcision would be a reminder to Abram and his children that the promise would come through the seed. Remember back in chapter 3, verse 15, God promised through the seed of Eve would come a person who would deliver God's people from their bondage in sin. Circumcision is a visible sign that would remind God's people that it would be through children, through a child, that God's promise would be confirmed. And that sign only being made known to the male daily and to his wife. A sign, a reminder that they are a covenant people. In response to this, we see in sort of a parallel fashion, beginning in verse 15, that the Lord again confirms his intentions and he says that it will be through Sarah, not Hagar, but through Sarah that a child will be born. I will bless her, he says, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. God promises a child to this couple. Again, in response to God's declaration in verses 15 through 16, Abram falls on his face again. And then, in corresponding fashion, Abram, or God responds by promising again that a son would come for Abram. This whole structure is meant for us to, to, to see that God is the one who is not only initiating the covenant, but that He will be the one who fulfills. It does not rest on the work of Abram or Sarai, but on God alone. Well, we've seen also that God confirms this by changing their names. God defines His people not only through covenant, but through name change. and Reminds them in their own names that God is the God who is almighty. Well, the text concludes with Abram fulfilling the sign of circumcision by circumcising his children, by circumcising his family. It reminds us that God is at work to save a people. Ultimately, as redemptive history unfolds in the Old Testament, Israel is found guilty of disobeying this covenant. Therefore, God enacts a new covenant. Jesus Christ comes and fulfills the old covenant, setting up the new in himself. This is made clear in Luke chapter 1 and verse 54. He has himself, his servant Israel, remembered to be merciful to Abram and his descendants forever, even as he 
said to our fathers. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this covenant that He makes with Abram. He's the one who could fulfill it. Abram would not be able to do it, neither would his descendants. And in the new covenant that is also received by faith in Christ alone for salvation, we receive our redemption through Christ. By repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ alone, we too are justified. We too are counted as righteous. And where the sign of circumcision was for the old, the new covenant sign is baptism. Baptism upon profession of faith marks us off. It declares who we are, that we are set apart by Christ Jesus alone for salvation. I want to conclude our time this morning by reading a short portion of Ray Vanderlei's powerful communication of the covenant-making ritual we considered earlier in Genesis 15 and how this ritual points forward to the way God will redeem us in Christ. He writes, What an awesome God we have! What incredible love He has for His creatures! Imagine the Creator of the universe, the holy and righteous God, was willing to leave heaven and come down to a nomad's tent in the dusty, hot desert of the Negev to express his love for his people. Bring me a heifer and a goat and a ram along with a dove and a young pigeon, God told Abram. Then, when those animals had been sacrificed and laid out on both sides of their shed blood, God made a covenant. To do that, he walked barefoot, in the form of a blazing torch through the path of blood between the animals. Think of it. Almighty God walking barefoot through a pool of blood. The thought of a human being doing that is to say the least unpleasant. Yet God, in all His power and majesty, expressed His love that personally by participating in that tradition, Near Eastern covenant-making ceremony. He made it unavoidably clear to be the people of that time, place, and culture, what he intended to do. I love you so much, Abram, God was saying, and I promise that this covenant will come true for you and your children. I will never break my covenant with you. I'm willing to put my own life on the line to make you understand. Picturing God's passing through the gory path between the carcasses of animals, imagining the blood splatting as he walked, helps us recognize the faithfulness of God's commitment. He was willing to express in terms His chosen people would understand that He would never fail to do what He promised. And He ultimately fulfilled His promise by giving His own life, His own blood on the cross. Because we look at God's dealings with Abram as some remote piece of history in a far-off land, we often fail to realize that we too are part of the long line of people with whom God made a covenant on that rocky plain near Hebron. And like those who came before us, we have broken that covenant. When he walked in the dust of the dirt and through the blood of the animals Abram had slaughtered, God was making a promise to all the descendants of Abram, to everyone in the household of faith. When God splashes through blood, he did it for us. We're not simply individuals in relationship to God. We are part of a long line of people marching back through history from our famous Jewish ancestors, David, Hezekiah, and Peter, to the millions of unknown believers. From the ancient Israelites and the Jewish people of Jesus' day, 
to the Christian community dating from the early church. We're part of a community of people with whom God established relationship in the dust and sands of Negev. But there's more. When God made covenant with His people, He did something no human being would ever consider doing. In the unusual blood covenant, each party was responsible for keeping only his side of the promise. When God made covenant with Abram, he promised to keep both sides of the agreement. If this covenant is broken, Abram, for whatever reason, my unfaithfulness or yours, I will pay the price, said God. If you or your descendants from whom you are making this covenant fail to keep it, I will pay the price in blood. And at that moment, Almighty God pronounced the death sentence on His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the promises You made to Abram that have now come to us in Christ. By faith, we believe that You will save through the death of Christ alone for Your glory and our eternal good in Christ's name. Amen.